Good morning. I'm told this is the time where the kids are dismissed. Go, I got my phone turned off. I made it here. I dismissed the kids, brought my Bible. Yes. It's good to see everyone. Uh, it's awesome to be back in a church that, uh, I, don't, I don't have any fancy way to say this, that has been incredibly good to me and to my sons, one who is in the Navy now who uh, um, got to come up in his high school years in the teaching of Treb and Brandon here, um, my other son, my family. This church has been so incredibly good to me uh, and kind to me, and they say things like, about me like uh, Mr. Don just said. Uh, instead of telling you that usually my old Bible fell apart in the middle of the class that we had, or I couldn't control all the conversation, you know, and actually get everyone back on task. Instead, Don chooses to, to say these words about competence and knowledge. It's almost silly, uh, but I'm glad to be back here. Let me read our text. We will pray, and we will uh, dig into the word a little bit, Lord willing, and uh, we will um, go eat our lunches. Amen? So hopefully in the middle of all that, the Lord is glorified. Genesis 1, first two verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving or hovering over the surface of the waters. Let's pray. Father, we bow our heads once again, and uh, when in Rome, do as Romans, so we want to pause, we want to pray, and we want to ask today that in a moment of silence, each of us, Lord, will take our hearts and just give them to you and say, Lord, teach us all from your word today. Change us, O oh God. And Heavenly Father, we all come here uh, not from vacuums or isolated places. We come here from the real world, and we know people uh, struggling. We know people who need prayer. So we bow our heads a moment, and uh, we pray that you will bless someone that you put on our hearts right now. And Father, we look around this room and we remember we're not here by ourselves to try to seek you alone. There are others. And we're in community. And so for a moment in silence, Lord, we each pray for someone around us that they also will receive um, your teaching from the word and spirit-empowered life from the reading of the word today. Let's pray. And Heavenly Father, we come to you today needing a word from God, needing your Holy Spirit to take the words on the page, warm our hearts, teach us, and to change us, Lord, and empower us to live and glorify you and thrive um, in the ways that really matter, oh God. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will transform us today as we dig into and understand the word of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, we open with the first two verses of the Bible. Uh, that seemed like an obvious statement. But it's really God's first impression of himself, if you will. And it seems to me that we are a culture kind of obsessed with first impressions. Um, I never would have guessed 10 years ago that it would matter so much what a social media picture looks like, right? Your profile picture, your, your silly Facebook picture. But these things matter to us. You know, we want to put our best face up. Everyone wants to put their best face up. Uh, think about what you would say if you met a new person and they said, tell me something about yourself. What first impression do you want them to know? Is it your family? Oh, well, here's, that's kind of my go-to. I just want people to know, no matter what you see, 
um, these people around me prove that <laughs> there's some level of competency here, right? So uh, maybe your job, maybe your service, maybe your church. Uh, what do you tell people? What is the first thing? These things matter to us. I don't know that they should matter all that much, but they do. Well, today we look at the first thing that God says about himself in the scripture. It's his first impression. It may not be our go-to where we start with, with when we think about God, when we construct our theology of, of God. He's compassionate. He's a savior. He's a redeemer. He's a father. The first thing God hands us about himself is awful news but wonderful news. The awful news is that it's not about us, that we're creatures. But the wonderful news is it's about someone else who's able, and he's a creator. He made the world, and we didn't make it. That makes him God, the creator, and as awful as it is to someone like me or us, it frees us to simply be creatures and not God. And so we can take that illusion and throw it down. And today, just look at the first couple verses in the Bible about God's first impression, if you will. If God, if, if God could tell you the first thing about himself, well, no if, you don't have to guess. He did, and it's wonderful, and it's great news. And so I read again if I turn my Bible the right side. Up. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And so, I'm just going to point out a few observations about God in the text. Number one, God is a, rev a revelator. God reveals himself. Now, that's not the obvious one, but like anything in the Bible, we really want to read it in context, right? And sometimes that's easy. Like when you're reading the book of Romans, that's not hard. It tells you, here's the author. His name is Paul. These are the Christians. They were in Rome. And you know, you can kind of get very specific with Romans and context and dates and who the Roman rulers were and things like that. And Paul's dynamic with the Roman Christians. Um, Genesis doesn't start that way. It doesn't tell us who the author is. It doesn't say those kinds of things. And I think sometimes we forget to think about those things. But it had a context. The Bible would ask us to believe that there was a man in history who killed someone. And his name was Moses. And he fled from that crime. And he went out into the desert. And maybe he thought those days were over of being an Israelite or a Hebrew or a person that... Worship the God of the patriarchs in Genesis. But in his elder age, God called him out of his wandering and called him back to Egypt. And God ends up empowering and using a former murderer to lead the people out of bondage, right? Like they were a slave people under an empire in ancient Egypt. And God brought them out of that. And so the Israelites, I don't know, thousands of years ago... They found themselves leaving a culture where they already had gods. They're gods of everything. Gods of death in Egypt. Gods of knowledge. Gods of rivers. And they're going to a culture, the land of Canaan, which is promised to be their land in these stories, and they're going to a new set of gods where the Canaanites will worship the very thunder in the sky that they see that brings rain. They'll call it Baal and they'll worship it. And every time uh, it's you need your livestock to reproduce more, you need the harvest to be better, well, then you'll worship the fertility goddess down in the valleys. Or you'll wor You get what I'm saying. I could go on about ancient Near Eastern gods and deities, but that's the world Israel lived in. And so the first thing I would say we see in this text is God did not leave the world in that state of falsities and idols. He could have. We would. <laughs> but God didn't do that. He called someone named Moses. And he revealed to Moses the way the world really works. It's not chaotic forces 
and the gods fighting for power and lots and this and that, there's a good God. And he had to reveal himself to us or we would have never come up with this. Just look at our history of making gods. (laughs) They look way too much like us. But he reveals himself. And so at the right time in that process, God shows Moses the way things really happened and were and the reality that is right. And Moses writes and puts it together and we open and read and we praise God. Number one, God is a revelator. He reveals himself. He reveals himself in his word that we didn't have before he did so. And number two, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I would say that uh, if number one is God reveals himself to his creation, number two is God created a cosmos that's temporal and temporary. Um, I suppose those could be fancy words. All I mean by temporal is that our world that we live in happens in time. You know, the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the New Testament fleshes that out so much more, right? John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And we learned that Jesus Christ, part of the triune God, was involved in this process that we see happening in Genesis 1. In Genesis uh, 1, verses 1 and 2. But... We see, and I like the way I wrote it, God created a cosmos that's temporal and temporary. It has a beginning. We live in a world that, that it has a starting point, and um, maybe bad news, maybe good news, it'll have an end point. Any big readers in here? I mean, I know we all read our Bible and religiously, wait. So... Um, I was a little, I was a lot of a nerdy kid. Uh, one of my favorite fantasy series growing up was a series called Will of Time. I was the crazy kid that would read 14-volume series. Uh, I got excited last year when the Will of Time series was going to be on TV. Like, wow! And I forgot that they, don't, that they never get that stuff right. And, and I remember being so excited and wondering when I turned it on the first time, why is everyone under 20 in this? Why is this about gender issues? Why? And so, well, okay, I'll stick to my 14-volume books and get back to that. But um, anyway, I bring that series up. I was always captivated as a kid by this idea that this fantasy series was taking place in this world that was sort of repeating itself in a, in a broken loop or will, a will of time. And that's just fantasy. I mean, we have major religions around the world built on these structures, don't we? Uh, that there is no beginning, there is no end to anything, that it just goes on perpetually in an infinite loop. Uh, One of my favorite movies back in the 90s, well, little context, I like think the best actor who ever lived was Robin Williams. I don't know, you don't have to agree with that. Uh, He had a big range, all that kind of stuff. But I think late 90s there was a beautiful movie called What Dreams May Come. And I love that movie. Uh, and I remember, uh, it's really old. You can spoil really old movies. At the end, like, the husband and wife, they, like, everything didn't work out, so they, like, jump back and restart and jump back into, they don't call it this, but sort of the will of time, and it spits them back out. And that would be so wonderful, wouldn't it? If the universe would spit us out and give us more chances and we could keep getting it right. Or it would be awful. We would be locked into that forever. But whatever the case, I don't know how it would be. I know how it is. It's not that way. We're not in a will of time. Um, I mean, I'm going to read the books again. I, I think I know fiction and reality. But that's not the way it is. Our universe had a start. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this cosmos that we live in, it will end one day. Um, mankind seems to want to throw a lot of guesses about how it will end. But God's revealed that too. He will come back at the right time and bring it into the way things are. And there will be something after that. And the Bible says a lot about that. But it will be different. It will be heaven and earth. But it will be made new. It will totally be remade. 
my point is, not only is God a revelator, but he's the God who in this text wants us to know he made a world with a starting point. It's temporary. It's part of a Christian worldview. Also, three, maybe this is an oversimplification, but I said God reveals himself to his creation. God created a cosmos that's temporal and temporary. Let's not miss the obvious. God is a creator. God fashioned the whole universe. Genesis 1, if you read it, it would ask us to believe that there is a God and he is powerful enough to speak and design the whole world exactly the way it's supposed to be. This distinguishes God from us. You can look up the word create. It's used 53 times in the Old Testament. It's always about God. He's the only one who creates, except twice in Joshua chapter 17. God tells Israel, you now go, now that I've given you this land, you go barah, you go create the land. But even that context sort of has the idea that God, who is the creator, is now empowering and releasing them to go transform the land into what it's supposed to be. I think even in context, those two times are really about God. What am I saying? We're not creators, but God is, and that's one of the things he hands us here. One of the things we see in the text is the creator-creature distinction. The awful news about this text is that if it's true, I'm no creator and I'll never be God and it'll never be about me. But all the wonderful news about the text is all those things are true. I don't have to be God. I'm not in control of his creation. I don't have to take responsibilities on myself that, that, that were never intended to rest there. God is a free creator. He spoke. His world comes into existence. And in that, we see a creature and a creator distinction. Now, this is significant. Uh, I don't know that the world sees it that way. One of our favorite places to visit. I bet some of you have been there. Have you been to Eureka Springs, Arkansas? Anybody? Okay, cool. We're from Arkansas, my family that is. It's one of our little spots. It has everything. It's pretty. There's a lot of food. We've got a catfish joint there. You know, the essentials. And I remember one time we were there and this is a little hokey, but it's called Eureka Springs because you can literally drive around and find dozens of springs in this town, outside the town, um, old springs, uh, really cool little, I don't even know, structures made around these things. And so one time our family was there, we were visiting a lot of the springs, you know, we were getting our pictures because of social media and first impressions and all that stuff. And... Uh, I remember one time this very inebriated person walked up and put his hands on this, the rocks as we were looking and talking and getting pictures of the spring. And he said, can't you feel the power in these rocks? And, you know, I kind of want to go there. I kind of, like, mm, little, <laughs> little. What do you mean by that? And he started talking about the rocks and the spring like it was God. And it had power. And uh, I, always, I always think I'm evangelistic until I kind of get flummoxed by something. And uh, then I realize I'm not much of an evangelist. I need to go collect my thoughts. In those situations, I, about 30 minutes later, I think of everything I should have said. You know, like, if I was just caffeinated, I could have got him in church, but I wasn't that day, so it all came later. It's like how I win arguments. It's the only way I ever win an argument, because I hate conflict. But like an hour after an argument with anyone, I'd think of every way I could have won. If, mm, if they had only let me talk, right? <laughs> but God's not in the stones. When I go to beautiful places, the Bible helps me see the reality of that situation. When we drive up Mount Scott, for instance. I know some hands will raise. You've been to Mount Scott? Okay. When we drive up there, and we've done that a few times, uh, 
And if you happen to catch it at the sunset, we don't get down there enough to get sunrise, or early enough, I should say. Uh, but if you happen to catch sunset, you can praise the God of creation, can't you? It's awesome. But as Christians, think about what this means. We don't look out there and see these things and worship them, do we? We don't even praise them. What would be the point of that? For one, it's a falsity, right? You keep reading Genesis 1. There is no mountain or forest or anything we'll find in space that is more magnificent of a creation than a human being. Genesis chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. God made us in his image. So it's wrong of us to look at things and worship them. But it's, it, it's, it's just incorrect. God's not in the mountain. He made the mountain. He's all around. He's everywhere at once. The Bible would ask us to believe that he's omnipresent, that he can be anywhere he wants to be, even if he lo- there's like a locus of his presence in one spot, Right? Like in Ezekiel chapter 1, you read, and there's wills within wills and angelic beings. There's like a locus of God's present presence. But we also know he's everywhere at once. You say, explain. No, I can't explain everything in the Bible. I can't explain that, but I accept it. That there's a God, and he's everywhere. But he's not the rock. He's not the tree. He's distinct. He's distinct. He's the creator. We're not. He's worthy of worship for creation. Nothing else is. Number four. God is separate from his creation. God is the creator, tied very closely to number four, but God is separate from his creation. We have to get these things right as Christians. They matter. They matter for our perspective. They matter for our practice. I want me and you to have the freedom to see the beautiful things in this broken world correctly and get the right things out of them. To look out there, it's almost if you don't know this, you're almost like prisoner to the things of the world. You look at them and how can I be significant when there's a Pikes Peak out there, right? That's like, what, 14,000 feet high, right? Or one of my favorite places on earth. Uh, in central Arkansas, there's a wonderful, wonderful state park called Petty Jean State Park. And if, you, if you're willing to throw down some protein bars and do a little hiking, you can find Cedar Falls, a 90-foot waterfall, one of the most beautiful places on the whole planet. My favorite, uh, Brandon and Trev are actually over where all my other favorites are right now in Israel, Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea, um, all that awesome stuff. But Petty Jean Mountain is probably my favorite place on the earth. I don't seem very significant when I'm looking at a 90-foot waterfall in the Washita Mountains. But the truth is, you and I are more significant than that falling water will ever be. Those things are impressive, but they're not God. God made them. They're impressive because they bear the fingerprints of a creator. But they're not the creator. They're creation, and they're temporary. They don't seem temporary, but they are. Because again, in the beginning, right, God made the world temporal and temporary. And God is a creator, and the text shows us a, a creator-creature distinction. And then, number five, we also see in this text that even though God is separate from creation, here's the really cool part. God is actively involved in his creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless. And void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So, number five, God is actively involved in his creation. The Bible is often like a puzzle to me. Like, I don't, 
understand something in the Bible, so like a rabid dog, I bite a hold of it, and I just shake and shake until either I break or I get something out of it. And usually in his goodness, God lets me see the thing I didn't understand, you know. Um, but for the longest time, I looked at these couple verses, and why is it formless? Why is it void? These words mean that when God made the world, he didn't, it didn't have any shape. It's formless. And it didn't have any stuff in it. It was empty. And apparently, he didn't have to make it that way. I mean, if I read through Genesis 1, and it, and it says things like this. Verse 3, God said, let there be light. Verse 6, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Verse 9, God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. Verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. to Separate day from night. And then verse 20, God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth and open expanse of the heavens. Verse 24, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. 26, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then you get into chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. This seems easy for God. How many things in your life would be so much easier if you could speak and they would be accomplished? I wouldn't have been doing laundry at 7 a.m. this morning. But this looks incredibly easy for God. Why would he make it that way? I think you just got to step back and see the full picture. It says that when God made the world, it didn't have any shape. It didn't have any stuff. And then you slowly read the text and you see that what God does is rectify that situation. For some reason, God made this world and he made it slightly incomplete. And then in six days, he completes it. I don't know why he did it that way. All indications in the text are that God could have spoke and it could be finished. If he can do it this way, he could do it that way. But he didn't. Instead... God made the world in such a way that he's separate from it, but he made it in such a way that he would have to be actively involved in his creation. And so he made it without any form. And so what does he do in the first three days? Day one, day two, day three, he gives it form. Day one, it says, what does he do? He separates light and darkness. I don't think of light and darkness as having form, but they did. And God separates those out. And then in day two, he gives more form. In day three, he gives more form to his world. And then guess what? Days four, five, and six, he fixes the empty part. Day four, day one, he made light and darkness separate. So on day four, what does he do? He fills his creation up with all the luminaries. The sun, the stars, the moon. As God fixes his cosmos in place, right? And day two... God separates the waters and the sky. And then day four, God fills those things with life and fish and birds. And day three, dry land appears. And then on day six, what does he do? He fills that space. It's beautiful. And we need to stop and take inventory and recognize the fact God didn't have to do it that way. But he did. God made the world in such a way that it's distinct from him, but he's, he's working in it. He's actively involved in it. It says in verse 2, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And it says the Spirit of God was moving, some Bibles say hovering over the surface of the waters, you can do your word studies on the word hovering over, moving over. You'll only find it a couple places in the whole Bible um, if you look at the original languages. In a couple other places in the Old Testament, the only other creature that hovers is a mother bird over its nest, believe it or not, when the eggs are incubating. 
That's the word God chooses to use here. That his spirit was hovering in a creative, incubating, caring way over his creation. Isn't that cool? And then what do we see God do? Again, all indications. Look, if I could speak and all the chores would be done, I wouldn't do it in stages. <laughs> right? I think I'd use all my uh, Christmases at once there and just boom, let them all be done. Uh, I'm sure the process would have played out, but you don't know my luck. You know, I'm just going to use it all at once, right? But God doesn't do it that way. He does it in such a way where he almost, he, he makes it incomplete, and then he steps in and shows us over a six-day period that he will be and intends to be and is perpetually going to be a God who's involved in his creation. So to summarize those things, and please understand uh, I've taught Hebrew and advanced Hebrew for, I don't know, I don't want to start saying years that I've done things. I'm a little young for that. But it's been a minute, okay? And so we always end up at this text because it's easy, right? It makes me look smart as a teacher. Young ministry students can feel good. Like, 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 like they won't quit ministry just because they had to take Hebrew. You know, I can get them, look, you can read the Bible in Hebrew, blah, 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 blah. And I guess I'm saying I've peeled this thing open a hundred times anyway. You can peel these verses open. But that doesn't make it any easier to preach today. <laughs> There's a hundred things I could point out from this text. We could do a series on Genesis 1, and it could, well, in the spirit of Trev and Branded, it could take years, years. And, and it would be awesome if they did that, right? In fact, pray that they'll do that. No, I'm just kidding. They got that covered. I trust them to have that covered, although they did invite me, which really kills my trust in them. No, I'm just kidding. I look at this text. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. I got five things I've said about it today. God reveals himself to his creation. God created a cosmos that's temporal and temporary. God is the creator. God is separate from his creation. And God is actively involved in his creation. So what? Okay, great. Well, the so what is huge. Because I'm, as I meditate on these things, as simple as these observations are, I realize that they are essentially part of every crisis that I bring upon myself, right? Um, God reveals himself to his creation. So many times in life, I feel completely lost as to what to do. I don't know what to do. And in our culture, it feels like everyone else in the church always knows what, what to do. God told me, God said, God told me, God said. And I'm always like, man, I wish I could tap into that. Maybe get one of these on them and I can hear what, you know. So many times I'm looking to the heavens and saying, God, why won't you show me? God, why won't you help me? God, why? But the truth is God is a revelator. And he has revealed himself. And how many problems do we bring on ourselves? ourselves because we don't go to the revelation of himself that makes it all so understandable and so clear to the thing that helps us and resets our vision, resets our eyes, resets us and recenters us. The truth is God is a revelator. And as murky as that can be out in the world sometimes, he has provided us something very clear I've had to teach a course called hermeneutics for, well, a long time. And I teach young college people how to, quote, interpret the Bible scientifically. <laughs> and so the first thing I tell students is pick up your textbook. This is not the Bible. This is way more unclear than the Bible is. Now, the Bible can be unclear. You've read Job once or twice. Um but I kind of agree with what the reformers said when they started doing crazy stuff like translating the Bible into languages the rest of us could read, right? Uh, 
started giving us the text in our own language, or in Luther's case, the German language. I sort of agree with one of their key doctrines, the perspicuity of Scripture, meaning just the clarity. The Bible's clear. It is. I'm not going to pretend like it's easy. I'm not going to pretend like it's always clear. But in a general sense, the Bible is God's revelation of himself to us. And think about this. I said God created a cosmos that's temporal and temporary. When we go through hard things in life, don't they sometimes feel like they can't end? They feel like they'll go on forever. There's no relief. There's no rescue. But the good news is this sin-broken world, it's not locked into that forever. We're not stuck in a will of time. It had a starting point. It has an end. And, and thank God I'm looking forward to the point right after that. In the beginning at this end of the Bible, I also like the other end about the new creation at the end of Revelation. It's temporary. And we can hurt so badly in this broken world that it doesn't feel temporary, but it is. And we can say crazy things, can't we? Why should I go on and do X? Why should I do this? If God won't X, then I won't Y. And that's getting close to math, way out of my expertise. But once I start doing algebra, you know I'm off the notes, right? But the truth is, I need to hear that. This is great news. There will be an end. And things will be remade and they will be better. Do I understand all that? No. Do I accept it? You better believe it. Do I want it? Yesterday. Will I hold on through adversity for it? You better believe it. And so will you. Because of what God has shown us. And I, and, and I said there's a... Three, God is creator, but God is separate from his creation. How many times do we struggle existentially with just living in this world because we forget that he's the creator and we're not? We forget that it's not about us. It hurts us so badly those times when our face hits the glass window and we realize there was something there. We walked into it. Someone got a video and put us on YouTube or whatever. The glass window of reality that we are not God and it is not about us. When I was in college, a long time ago now, a little book came out called The Purpose Driven Life. And everyone was so upset. The first line of Rick Warren's book was, it's not about you. Oh, and that hurt the church's feeling in this country. I remember it. But for... Some of us, and at my place in the world at that time, that was wonderful news. If it's not about me, then I don't bear its pressures and its burdens. It's about someone else, and I'm going to have to rely on him. We all hit our face on the glass window of reality sometimes, that it isn't about us, and it hurts and we cry out to God, why won't you X? Why won't you Y? Why won't you fix this? Why won't you help them? Why won't you do the thing that would make it all better? And we want to play God. And we want to speak things into existence. But the truth is, he's God and we're not. And a lot of the crises we have in our lives... They revolve around the fact that you and I have a hard time letting go of that, of accepting that. But it is reality. We are no gods, and that hurts our egos so badly, but isn't it the most wonderful news in the whole world? I don't have to bear all the burdens of the world. In fact, I can't. In fact, I wasn't made to. God is separate from his creation. And I said God is actively involved in his creation. I think we saw that in the text, right? That his world was made in such a way. And again, I take it that if God wanted to, he could have made it finished. I mean, if he can speak it into existence like that, he could have done it all at once, but he didn't. 
How many times do we hurt and ache and get angry at God and have doubts because it doesn't feel like he's doing anything. It doesn't look like it. We don't see it. We're crying out to him. We ask, and we just don't see his, his restorative power, his generative power, his creative power. And it doesn't always feel like God is working behind the scenes, does it? doesn't always feel like he's there. And this is a great crisis for you and me when we want to see God's hand and we're calling on him. Sometimes we've messed up and done something and we need to repent, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the Job moments in life where you have no idea. What is he up to? Why did he let that happen? A lot of crisis in my life, and probably your life comes when you don't see and you're having trouble believing that things are working behind the scenes. But I need to read a passage like this and see and be reminded of this, this truth, this theological fact about God, that he made the world in such a way that he must now be actively involved to bring it to its completion. Isn't that awesome? And I guess if I were to close, I would um, talk about Jonah. Sorry, I know that's your name. <laughs> I'm talking about the Bible person, though. Um, I've been meditating a lot on Jonah this year because, well, I feel like there's something more than he went the other way. And, you know the story of Jonah? God says, go preach to the Ninevites, and he doesn't really want to do that, so he gets on a ship and goes uh, west instead of east, and, and you know, a, a fish pukes him up onto the ground, and then he goes, you know, four chapters of awesome. At the end of the day, Jonah is a prophet of God. I guess we would say a child of God. I guess we would say a person of God. And God called him to do something, and he didn't want to do it. And the Lord of creation used his creation to make sure Jonah got back on the track to go do the thing he was supposed to do. And I guess at the end of the day, we all have a little bit of that in us. Jonah did not want a God who would save the Israelites. He wanted to make his own God. And when his face hit the glass window... God is not the way you want him to be? He ran. said, okay, then I'll go this way. That's idolatry. You do it and I do it. We have ways that we want God to be. We have modes that we want him to operate in. We have things we want him to do. And oftentimes the crises in our lives are when the living God simply won't conform himself to the way that we are demanding that he be for us. But the truth is we all need to recenter on texts like these from, some, from, from time to time because they remind us, me and you, what reality is really is. We're not God. These things that happen to us, they won't be forever. It's not all about us. There's a God. He sent his son. His Holy Spirit is working in the world. And one day the world will be over and his redeemed will be with him together forever well I guess I did preach the whole Bible accidentally but I said I'd do that every time but today I just want you for a few minutes while I pray and while everyone comes up and leads us out pray about these things as we sing together meditate on these things thank God for these things Trust God in these things. He's the creator. 
we don't have to be. Things hurt us a lot. People hurt us a lot. Life gets us sometimes. But it's not forever. We don't always see God working in this world. Challenges us. I mean, if C.S. Lewis can write in his books that he struggled with faith, I'm going to take some leeway and say I can do that too. (laughs) Right? Sometimes things challenge our faith, and it doesn't feel like we see God anywhere. Maybe the picture we had of God turned out not to be complete yet. But the truth is, he's actively working in his world. He's been doing it since he made the world. In fact, he made the world in such a way that he had to get his hands on it to finish it. Did he have to do it that way? No. Did he do it that way? Yes. Is it awesome? You better believe it. Because if this is true, then I don't have to rely on my own eyes and my own senses to trust that behind the scenes, God is working. God is bringing new things. Maybe like the Israelites in Joshua 17, maybe God is right around the corner about to empower us to go out and recreate, transform part of his creation. You hold on, and I will hold on. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, O creator. Please continue to create in us hearts of obedience, hearts of trust, hearts of faith, and help us hold on. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing this final song. Uh, It's full of scriptures about who God is, and um, we want to remind our hearts and um, Let these things take root in our mind. Like the
recognize the gospel. By his own death did he save us, Jesus who was without sin. we worship you. We thank you for this truth. We walk away with it in our hearts. Keep it sealed there in Jesus' name. Go with the Lord.